Before we uh, go to the Word this morning, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we come to you this morning and are uh, desirous to lift up the name of Jesus in our singing, in our own hearts, in the proclamation of your word. In our time here this morning, we desire to lift up the name of Jesus. We also have the Lord's Supper this morning where we get to celebrate him and what he's done and we get to proclaim his death until he returns. So I pray that you would be honored this morning, that you would be pleased to work in our midst, that we would lift up the name of Christ even this morning. Father, I pray that you would work in us, that we would be responsive to your spirit, that we would be sensitive, that we would have our eyes open and our hearts opened by you to understand your word and its significance for us today. We give you this time. This is yours. And we look forward to seeing what you have for us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Open in your Bibles, if you would, to Acts chapter 3. Acts chapter 3. We are pressing on through the book of Acts. And uh, Lord willing, we will get all the way through chapter 3 today. I was walking through a store recently with my family. And we were... uh, had had our, our three-year-old there with us, and she pointed at, at uh, something down one of the aisles, and she said, Daddy, what's that? And I said, that's a wagon. I, I love those easy, you know, the softball questions. <laughs> that's a wagon. Well, then came the tough one. Daddy, why is that a wagon? <laughs> I have no idea how to answer that question. <laughs> so I don't even remember what I told her, but... Uh, <laughs> Probably, you know, usually when she asks the why is that a tree thing, I say, well, because the Lord made it a tree, right? But a wagon, I wasn't quite sure. But, uh, you know, it's interesting. Um, I'm by no means, a, you know, a child psychologist or anything like that. But uh, watching kids grow up, you can see where they begin to ask certain questions. And, and, and when they get, you know, first be- begin to use language, they want to know what's that and what's that and what's that. And those are the blissful days. And then they get to the why questions, right? They discover the why question produces a lot more interesting answers, right? And so they start pulling out the why question. And when they're three, it's why is that a wagon? Well, there's no interesting answer to that that I could come up with. I mean, if you have an interesting answer, let me know so I can entertain her next time. But, but, But what's happening is the child is starting to discover that this why question is really important. And they want to know at this stage, why is that a wagon? But later on, why do you do that? And why does it say this? And, and why did this person say that? And, and those, those why questions are important because they give us meaning. They address the topic of meaning, right? First is just what's there, and then what does it mean? And so when, uh, when she asked that question, I, of course, was stumped, but then also was thinking about today's message and thinking that we are going to be working through a situation here where in Acts chapter 3, you're going to have Peter and John going up to the temple, and there's this miracle that the Lord does, and it's an amazing miracle. Well, that's incredible by itself, and that's the what question, Daddy, what is that? Well, it was a miracle, and it was God doing this thing, and, and you're going to see uh, what the reaction of the people will be. But the real significance, the real import of an event like that is not that it happened, as important as that is, but the meaning behind it. 
And that's what we're going to see as we turn to Acts chapter 3 and look through our passage today. We're going to see the meaning of the miracle. So you have your Bible open, Acts chapter 3. I'm going to start reading and uh, work our way through our passage today, which is going to lead us into our time here uh, of the Lord's Supper. Starting in Acts 3, verse 1. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a man, lame from birth, was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, that is called the beautiful gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, Look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, and expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people who saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. And so you see the healing of this man. This is the event. This is the what? Daddy, what is that? It's a wagon, right? This is the, the event as it happens. And, and uh, it's an amazing event, event that, that, uh, that the Lord does here. An actual healing of this man who was uh, about 40 years old or more. He had been lame from birth. He had never walked. He had never leapt. And here he is walking and leaping and praising God for what God had done uh, to him. And so it's an amazing thing. And you have this, uh, this story as it's developing. You have Peter and John going to the temple at the hour of prayer. We closed out last week by talking about the fact that the, the young church would regularly go to d- devoting themselves to spent time praying together. And they went to the prayers. And so you see this going on here. It's the hour of prayer at the temple. And so they're going up there. And here's this man who's lame from birth. And he would, they would bring him and they would put him there at the entrance to the temple, which is a good place to be put if you're going to be asking for alms because these people going up to the temple are obviously committed, religious, devote, uh, devout people. And so asking them for, for uh, alms is probably going to be more beneficial than going somewhere else. So it was a smart thing that they were doing. But uh, when he saw Peter and John, he asked for alms. And verse 4, Peter directed his gaze at him. And that's an interesting term, directed his gaze. You know, it's not all that interesting really by itself, except when you start looking at the fact that it occurs about eight or ten times throughout the book of Acts. It's a very significant uh, phrase that has to do with looking intently and trying to discern something. It's the same phrase that was used back in chapter 1 when Jesus ascended to heaven. And what did the disciples do? They were staring into, into the sky, right? This, it's the same word. And they were, they were looking, not just like, where did he go, but trying to discern what this means and, and when's he going to come back and, and what exactly is happening. They were trying to understand the situation. And so uh, you, have, you have Peter and John looking at this man and trying to discern something. 
It doesn't tell us what they're discerning, but they're looking. Like they went to the temple every day, and the, the passage here says that this man was laid there every day to receive alms. And so they had seen the guy before. They'd walked by him. They may have said hi to him, or I don't know, but they had walked by him. But this day, something was different. And Peter looks at him, and I don't know if he sees something different or, or if he just discerns this is the opportunity. This is the time. I don't know. But, but he was looking to see, and, uh, and, and, and he was arrested by what he saw. And so as opposed to all the other days when he would walk by, apparently, this time he stopped, looked, and spoke to the man. So there was, there was something powerful, something uh, special going on this day, right? Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, look at us. He fixes attention. And then, he, and then Peter said, I have no silver or gold, but what I do have I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Rise up and walk. You see, Peter was the one standing there in front of the guy. And he was the one addressing him. Peter and John were there. But this healing was not of Peter's own doing. This was something that Jesus did. And Peter makes that clear by invoking the name of Jesus. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And so this is, this is an example that, we, that has been talked about already in the book of Acts of miracles, signs, and wonders being done at the hands of the apostles. But really, this is the Lord doing these miracles. The same one who was doing the miracles back in the Gospels, Jesus, walking around healing people, raising people from the dead, uh, making food multiply, all the things that he did, casting out demons, all of those things that he did, and now he's still doing those same things, but he's using his church to do those things. And so you have the Lord ministering here in a special way and healing this man. And we're going to get back to this idea of the name uh, of Jesus and what exactly that means. But this wasn't Peter doing the miracle. This was Jesus doing the miracle. And, of course, they were filled with wonder and amazement, and they were utterly astounded, which is appropriate. If we saw that, we would be utterly astounded. We would be shocked. Can you imagine Someone who's we've known for years and years, or at least we've seen him, years and years sitting outside the temple asking alms, hasn't walked a day in his life, and here he is, not just you know getting along with a walker or a cane or with assistance, he's walking and leaping and praising God. He's jumping around, he's he's rejoicing in the in the new abilities that he has that God has restored his body. And of course they were astounded. They really took notice of what was going on. They were they were amazed by what they saw. And of course they all rushed together, probably to hear how did this happen or what's going on, or uh, they, they wanted to know what's the deal here with this man who's been here for all these years. And so uh, that's that's the event itself. And what they're asking probably is, what does this mean? What's the significance of all of this? And so uh, look at verse 11, and we will continue reading. While he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people. Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we had have made him walk. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the Holy and Righteous One and asked for a murderer to be granted to you 
and you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses, and his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. And so he begins to address them. This miracle has happened. The crowd has gathered and he begins to address them and explain to them what this all means and explain to them what has really gone on and, and what's happening with this miracle and how to understand it. And so I want to I point our, our attention to just a couple of items. First of all, there in verse 12, why do you stare at us? Why are you looking at us? Why are you trying, why you're tr- looking at us trying to discern how we did this? Or by what power we did it? Or are we? is there something special and maybe you should begin to follow us? Or maybe you should begin to lift us up or idolize us? Or why are you looking at us? And so he identifies right away that these people are coming and staring in wonder at Peter and John. And they shouldn't be. And of course, later on throughout uh, the book of Acts, we're going to see that, that this is a similar kind of thing. The same thing happened to Paul. When he, uh, he, he healed a man in Jesus' name and the man jumped up and was le- leaping and walking around and praising God and the people tried to worship Paul, tried to worship Barnabas. And so they got their eyes fixed on the wrong, uh, the, the wrong um, uh, object of worship and they wanted to worship one who was really just the messenger. And, and Peter, of course, is very quick to point away from himself and to point to Christ. Yes, this wonderful thing happened. And it's amazing. And you can't explain it. And it doesn't, it didn't come from me. It didn't come from my own power. It didn't come from my own piety. This is, this is something Jesus has done. And just to pause here for a second and think about our own lives and, and the way we live our lives. Probably not many of us go around doing miracles. But we live our lives... And we think of how to share the gospel or how to represent Christ with our neighbors and our co-workers and, and our family members who don't know the Lord. And there, there is uh, an idea, and it's a true and good idea that should not be left alone. And that true and good idea is that I represent the Lord by my lifestyle. I'm going to show them what the Lord is like by the way I live my life. I'm going to be honest. I'm going to have integrity. I'm going to love people. I'm going to be self-sacrificial for other people. I'm going to represent Christ by the way I walk in obedience to Him. And that's a good thing. The Lord wants us to do that. But if we stop there, what's the result? People look at us and they think, wow, that guy is just a good guy. He's a really good guy. And I don't know how he does it, uh, but he's very generous. He's loving to people. He has integrity. And uh, he, he does what he says he's going to do. And he tells the truth. And he loves people. And he's a great guy. Isn't that wonderful? And then they go on about their day. Thinking you're a great guy. And so Jesus gets no credit for that. Jesus isn't even part of that conversation. You're a part of that conversation. You're the object of that worship that's going on. And so there's a... There's something that we can learn here from what Peter does. That Peter had just performed an amazing miracle. We're just, you know, like trying to live lives of integrity and and love and things like that. And and we have trouble sometimes pointing beyond ourselves. And here Peter had just done this amazing thing. And he's quick to say, whoa, don't look at me. This is about Jesus. This is all about Jesus. 
And so I think there's a lesson here in passing for us about the way we live our Christian lives, that yes, we need to live with integrity. Yes, we need to live lives that show off Christ. And then we better show off Christ with our language. We better point to Him as being the reason we live this way, as the source of how we live this way, that, yeah, I'm not really a great guy, but Jesus really is a great guy. And He is working in me, and He is changing me, and He has sacrificed himself for me so that I could be his own. He's the one you should be looking at. He's the one you should be talking about. He's the one you need to be thinking about and worshiping and not me. And so I think there's a challenge here that, you know, it's kind of nice when people say, wow, you know, you just the way you do business is just wonderful. That's really great. Well, thanks. That's nice. Right. And we kind of want to keep that. Well, I'm glad you do business well, and I'm glad people, you know, give you credit for that. And we need to turn that upon Jesus. We need to direct that to him. We need to make that into a conversation about who Jesus is. And that's exactly what Peter does here in this situation is he quickly takes it beyond himself to point to Jesus. Jesus was really the one who performed this miracle. He's really the one who was at work here. It was Jesus' power. It was Jesus' piety that caused this thing to happen. Let's see what we have here in verse 13. Peter addresses them and says, why are you looking at us? And then he turns immediately and says, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate. His servant Jesus. God treated him a particular way. God glorified his servant Jesus. And we're going to come back to that idea of servant but I, but I want to draw attention to the contrast between what God had done, the, the, the credentials that God had given Jesus, the way God had treated Jesus, versus the way he had been treated by the people around him. The Jewish leaders, and uh, Pilate, and the Romans, and all the others. There's a, there's a stark contrast. God had glorified his servant Jesus, but they had delivered him over. God had raised him up, and they had delivered him over arrested him and given him in. Pilate even wanted to release him because he was innocent. But they asked for another to be released instead. Oh, we don't want that guy. We don't want him. Yeah, he may be innocent, but we hate that guy. We would rather have this other person released. And so Pilate wanted to release him. They didn't. They asked for another instead. And Jesus, who's called the Holy and Righteous One of God, That's his character, and everyone knew that about him, that he's a holy man. He's a righteous man. That was clear from his life. That was evident by the way he lived his life, by the words that he spoke, by everything. It was evident that he was the holy and righteous one of God, and yet who did they want to be released instead? A murderer. Don't give us the holy and righteous Jesus. Don't, Don't release him, punish him, and give us the murderer instead. There's such a, sh- a sharp contrast. There's such a, an irrational hatred of Jesus that they would want a murderer instead. Jesus, who was the author of life, and they took his life because they hated him that much. And so he, there's, a, there's, there's irony here. There's a, a sharp contrast. There's, there's, there's very clear distinction between who Jesus really is, how the Father had treated him, and what the people did with him. So the author of life, they took his life, but God restored that life to him, and the life he gave to him will never be taken again, can never be taken again. And so he starts off by pointing out exactly 
not only did Jesus do this thing, but you have stood against Jesus at every turn. They pointed out how differently uh, they had behaved toward Jesus as opposed to the way God behaved toward Jesus. The way Jesus should have been treated. And they've treated him this horrible, evil, clearly irrational way. And so he points that out to them. And I want to say in passing that when we're sharing the gospel with someone, it is a mercy. It is a mercy to point out to the person how they have rebelled against God whether knowingly or unknowingly. That's a part of the good news. They need to hear that bad news first, or else the good news makes no sense. And so it's a mercy when we do that. It's a mercy when we share with people and, and, and point out to them their own rebellion against God. And that's what Peter does here. That's what he starts with and, and points out these things. And he says, uh, he, he talks in verse 16, uh, he moves on and explains a little bit of what's going on. It's kind of an awkward sentence, and it's awkward in Greek too. And, and he says, And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. He points right back to Christ, and he says, This is about faith in Christ. This is what he has done. This is about faith in the name of Jesus. The faith that is through Jesus. Jesus healed people and did miracles in his, own, uh, in his own ministry while he was on earth. And that was the power of the Spirit, by the way, working through him. And now in the book of Acts, Jesus, by the power of the Spirit, is still doing miracles, but he's doing it through his apostles. But he is, he is doing the same kind of miracles and continuing the same sort of ministry that he was doing on earth. Only now he's doing so through his church. It's being done by the Spirit, but it's being done in Jesus' name. What does that mean in Jesus name? Probably most of us when we you know when we pray we know that we close in Jesus name right and uh, and when you're first learning to pray it's almost one word like you don't even have it broken down Uh, you don't really understand perhaps when you first start but but what does Jesus name mean and why do we tack it on when we pray? Well the name of Jesus stands for and represents the reality of Jesus who Jesus really is and so when, when we invoke Jesus name That means that we are calling upon our relationship to Jesus in all His authority, in all His power, in all His majesty as the basis for our prayer. It's Him. He's the reason we can even come to God in the first place. And that's why we pray in Jesus' name. Instead of saying, I get to come to you, God, because of these things I've done, in Brennan's name, amen. That's horrible. That's horrific. And we don't have the right to come before God. We don't have the right to approach Him in that way in our own name. But we get to in the name of Jesus. Because of what He's done, because of what He's accomplished, we get to approach God in that way. And this is the same thing here, that it is His name, it is Jesus' name that has performed this miracle. It is, it is that understanding that we're talking about who Jesus really is, what he's really accomplished. And because of that, because of his authority and his position and his power and his majesty, he's going to do this miracle. And so Peter actually did the motions, and I don't know what that looked like. He reached out, and I don't know what all else he did. It didn't really matter because it was Jesus doing the work through his servant. It was by faith in Jesus that this happened. And so the apostle calls on Jesus' name as the basis and the power for this man's legs to be healed. It was the work of Jesus done through his apostles. Let's move on in our story. 
17 through the, the uh, end of the chapter, well, 17 through 21, let's look at. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time of restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. And so we get to the meat of the message. We get to the heart of the message, which is the call to repentance. And so he moves on from explaining what has gone on, explaining this is about something Jesus did, now to moving on to them. Before we get to the repentance portion, it's interesting what he says there in verse 18, what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. This is the same Peter who, remember, was called Satan in the Gospels because he rebuked Jesus. And for what did he rebuke Jesus? He rebuked Jesus for saying that he was going to suffer and die. And be raised from the dead. And Peter said, whoa, Lord, no way. That's not going to happen. And now we have this same Peter saying, remember the Old Testament talked about the fact that the Christ must suffer? And so how far had Peter come in his understanding? How far had he developed in understanding who Jesus really is and what his mission really was? And so you have that same one who just chapters earlier denied this very fact and now saying, the Old Testament talks about it. It's plain for all to read. It's right there. And so you see that Peter is developing and he is growing. We get to verse 19 and we see the heart of the message there. Repent, therefore, and turn back. The people he is speaking to have stood against Jesus in all the ways that he's pointed out. Pilate wanted to release him. They didn't care. They wanted someone else released. They wanted Jesus taken care of. Jesus was the holy and righteous one. They wanted to murder instead. He was the author of life, but they were going to take away his life. They had stood against him at every turn. And so the, the call to them, these people had, were just now beginning to understand when they see this miracle that happens in Jesus' name, where Jesus himself is doing that work, and they're just now beginning to understand we are guilty before God. And folks, until a person understands, until you understand your own guilt before God, you will never move forward. You will never be able to understand the gift of the gospel until you understand that you need the gospel, until you see your own opposition to Jesus, in many ways ignorant, in many ways knowing, until you see your own opposition. And the gospel call for us starts with, this is your condition, guilt before God. You have made yourself an enemy of God by your, by your actions, by your heart, by the things that you love and the things that you hate. And so the gospel call is understand that and repent. And, and this, is, this is a command. It's an imperative. Repent. He's telling them to repent. This is the powerful call of the gospel. And that's the powerful call of the gospel for you. Is maybe you have, maybe you have uh, continued all of your life in rebellion against God. Maybe you have never come to know the Savior. Maybe... Maybe you, you continue to reject Him in small ways, in big ways, in subtle ways, in philosophically sounding ways, or, or uh, uh, just the way you live your life. And the call for you is to repent. 
to turn from that, to turn from your opposition to Jesus and turn to Him. To turn from the things that you've been valuing and value Jesus. To turn from the things that you've been trusting in and trust in Him. To turn from the things that you've been loving and turn to Jesus and love Him. To turn towards Him. Repent, therefore, and turn back. And these are, these are commands and these people... Uh, understood their own guilt now. And that's the heart of the message is repent. I love that we started off with a miracle and we end up with an interpretation of it, which is you need to repent. And there are consequences of repenting. There are things that come out of it. First of all, that your sins may be blotted out. This is, this is what happens when you repent toward Christ. This is what happens when you trust in Him. By the way, this, this concept of repentance... It has to do with faith. What, repentance is the focus on what we're turning away from, which is the way we've been treating Christ, which is the way we've been rejecting Him, the sin that we've been pursuing and valuing more than Him, and, and turn towards, and the word belief focuses more on this turn towards Him. And so this is a, this is a message about faith in Christ and repentance towards Him. And he says the first consequence, the first result is that your sins may be blotted out. All of these things that you have that you have done, all of, and, the, and by the way, there are so many more than we could even talk about. The depth of our depravity, the depth of our rebellion against God is ju- not just about actions that you could write down on a sheet. It is about heart motivations and intentions and things deep down that may be even subconscious to us, but they're our own motivations. And repentance and faith toward Christ brings forgiveness of those. So that the enmity we had uh, we, we had earned from God is wiped away so that our sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Peace with God. Peace with God. So you, you come to this place where you realize your guilt before Him. You repent. You trust in Christ. You have forgiveness of sins. And all of a sudden, you have refreshment. You have a time of refreshing. You have peace with God. And all of that means in your relationship with Him. And there is nothing like that. Peace with God, where before there had only been enmity. That He may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things. The third result of repentance toward Christ and faith in Him is a share in the restoration of all things. We have an inheritance. That inheritance is heaven. He's talking here about the return of Christ and the restoration of all things and the part that we get to play in that and how that affects us and the fact that we get to be on His side in the midst of all of that, that we become inheritors instead of in enemies who are standing against Him. And that's, those are the consequences, those are, those are the results of repentance and faith toward Christ. But He's not done yet. He continues on, verse 22. Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaim these days. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. Peter now refers back to 
the common understanding that they all had. He's been talking about their life and how they've treated Jesus. They didn't have to remember too far back to recall shouting, crucify him, crucify him. He's moved beyond that. He's saying this is actually consistent with the entire message of the Bible. This is what you've been taught from from the time you were a child. These things are being fulfilled right now. They're that that's all consistent that all points towards like a giant arrow pointing towards these things that are happening right now he says first of all uh, Moses said in verse 22 Moses said the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers you shall listen to him in whatever he tells you and so he if you think back to the the ministry of Moses and we just went through Exodus last year so that's all fresh on our minds and uh, if the the ministry of Moses Moses uh, you know was the human agent who brought the people out of the land of Egypt and towards the promised land he was the one who you know he was the human agent who parted the the waters that they could walk through he was the one who who gave them the law uh, humanly speaking he's the one humanly speaking who provided the manna and all of that you have all of this ministry of Moses Moses was the one who stood between the people and God talking for God to the people. He was explaining to them the law. He was explaining to them what these things mean. He was the one leading them. He was God's agent. He was God's representative. He was God's prophet. And he prophesied towards the end of his life. He said, God's going to send another prophet like me to you and you shall obey what he says. And it shall be that everyone who stands against him is going to be destroyed. And so there's an expectation of a prophet taking that mediatorial role between God and man that's going to come. And he's, he's going to do it, but not just any old prophet, but there's going to be one who's going to do it even better. And of course, that is Jesus himself. And, and if I flip over real quick to Hebrews chapter 1 and read just a couple of verses there about how Jesus speaks on behalf of God, we read this, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days... He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. So He spoke by prophets long ago, and now He has spoken most fully and most completely in Christ Himself. And so He says, you you have this expectation from Moses on that there's going to be someone who's going to speak on behalf of God to the people. Jesus is Him. He continues in verse 24. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaim these days. What was Samuel known for? The prophet Samuel. Well, he, he introduces us to David. He's the one who brings David on the scene. He's the one who anoints him. He's the one who brings David to us. And what's the expectation with David? Well, David was a great king and he, he, he functioned in great ways, but he was not all that he should have been. And he was not really the king that he should have been. And there were prophecies made about him, about one of his offspring, one of his seed that would come, who would be, he would reign in righteousness and he would reign forever. And so Samuel introduces that whole idea. And Peter is saying that expectation that you had regarding the Davidic king, the messianic king, that's Jesus. It's being fulfilled in your midst. And so the one who speaks on behalf of God, that's Jesus. The one who is the Davidic king, who's going to reign in righteousness forever, that's Jesus. But he's not done. He keeps on moving. Verse 25. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your offspring shall all of the families of the earth be blessed. There's another aspect that they were all aware of. They all knew King David and they all knew Moses. And they all know about the Abrahamic covenant. They all know about the promise that was made to Abraham back in chapter 12 of Genesis. 
that there, there's going to be a blessing, that they are going to be a blessing to all the world. That, that God was going to make Abraham into a great nation, and there are other things connected with that. And, and in him, all of the families of the earth will be blessed. And every Jew knew that, uh, knew that covenant. And he's saying, yeah, you remember that covenant? You're the children of the covenant. You're the, you're, the, you're the children of the prophets and, and also of this covenant. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, and in, you shall, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. He says, that's Jesus. This is another strain that's through the entire Bible. And you all know it. And it's summed up. It's located entirely. It's perfected. It's consummated. It's completed in Christ himself. And so that is who this Jesus is. But he's not done yet. Verse 26, God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. God, having raised up his servant. That's the second time the term servant has been used in here. And this is not the normal term servant that often gets translated as slave or bond slave. This is the kind of servant that has a specific kind of reference. It, it doesn't mean slave, bond slave. It can mean child. But here it means servant, and it's a reflection back on what are called the servant songs in the book of Isaiah. Further expectation. This is, this is a, a, another aspect of prophecy. This is another line of continuity between the expectation from the Old Testament being summed up in Jesus. That when Peter uses the word servant, this your servant, this, the, the servant Jesus, he's using, he's using that word that would have tripped off, I think, in their minds, the servant songs from Isaiah. And, of course, there's the greatest of the servant songs, or there's the one probably that's known best to us, and it has language even common with what we have here in our verse. And, and uh, it's, it's from Psalm, uh, excuse me, Isaiah 52 and Isaiah 53, which we're going to read in just a moment. So if you go and open your Bibles there, Isaiah 52, we're going to start in just a moment and look at that passage. You see, this is what's happening here in this psalm, excuse me, in this song. What's happening here is that the the people of Israel have been called to be God's own people. And they have failed miserably. They've been given the law to give them instruction and direction to keep them pure. And they've they've blown that at every turn. They've been given a land and now they've been there. They're in this place in Isaiah, they're, being, they're in danger of being driven out of the land. It's going to happen because of their idolatry, because they have turned against God so much. And so the, the nation of Israel is proving to be a failure in nearly every way. And so here uh, there is a prophecy given in the book of Isaiah about one who would come, who would be a servant, a representative. And he would do for Israel the things that Israel should have been doing. He would function in the way that they should have functioned. And he's going to minister to them because he has done so. And, uh, and so this, this song that we have here in Isaiah 52 and 53, according to, uh, according to Peter, and when we read it, you'll see how clear it is that this is pointing to Christ. And Peter is saying, Jesus is that servant, the one who steps in and represents you, the one who obeys where you've disobeyed, the one who, who offers himself as a sacrifice for you so that you can be forgiven. That's Jesus. 
And of course, when the, when the Jews read this passage, they had misunderstood it. And they had often thought that it applied to uh, Israel, that Israel was going to come around and they were going to be obedient in these ways and, and stuff like that. But Peter makes it very clear in his message that this is talking about Jesus. And I'm going to read from here in, in just a moment. But that brings us to, to the table, the Lord's table. That brings us to communion, where we get to celebrate, we get to remember, we get to proclaim the truth of the death of Christ on our behalf until he returns. And so this, this servant song that we have here in Isaiah 52 and 53 points to communion. It points to what we're going to do here. And so if I could have the men who are going to serve communion come on forward, I would appreciate that. And uh, this, this communion celebration, this is not a ritual that we do that con- uh, confers some kind of special blessing apart from Christ or anything like that. This is something that, that we've been given by Christ to celebrate together, to remind ourselves and to proclaim until he comes. But it is a very great blessing. He is, he is here and present in a unique and special way for those who are in Christ. And so for us this morning, as we're about to take this, I want that message to be very clear that this is for Christians. This is for those who are in Christ. That, that uh, we, when we talk about his body broken for us, we talk about the, uh, the cup of his blood shed for us. Only those who are in Christ should celebrate that. And so if, if you're not in Christ, if you don't, if you don't understand what this means, uh, if, uh, if, if you need to come and talk to me afterwards and, and get some things straight, just let the, let the elements pass. Um, it would be better for you to do that than to, uh, than to take as an unbeliever in this condition. And so I would, I would encourage you uh, about that, that this is for believers. This is also uh, something that Paul warns us pretty sternly about, that we're to take this in a worthy manner. Now, we all know from reading our Bibles that, that we will not attain per- perfection in this life. Okay? So we know that to some degree we are unworthy. But there is a sense in which if we are walking in, in disobedience, if we are continuing in disobedience to God, we are living a life that don't really care what God says on this topic, I'm just going to do it, that that person needs to let the elements pass and needs to deal with this before God, needs to go to Him and confess your sin, find forgiveness in Christ so that you can take this in an unworthy manner. And so uh, as we come together, we're going to... Uh, we're going to celebrate this, and and as the as the uh, bread and the and the cup are passed, just hold, hold hold on to the bread. We'll all partake together. When the cup goes around, hold on to that. We'll all take together. We come to this to the uh, the suffering servant uh, here in Isaiah, and we read uh, we read these verses in uh, in chapter 53 and verses four and five. Now remember, this is written hundreds and hundreds of years before Christ. It says, Surely He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed Him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with His wounds, we are healed. So let's pray. Father, as we come to this time in our service we rejoice that we get to celebrate the death of Christ on our behalf. And we rejoice right now in Jesus offering his body to be crushed. And we celebrate that with the taking of the bread, which is a symbol of his body, which represents to us what he did and how he gave his body to be broken for me in my place, in my stead.
And so I, I don't deserve that. I didn't deserve that. I don't deserve that. And yet Jesus did it. For the joy set before him, he endured even that. And so, Father, as we come to this bread, may we lift up Christ in our midst and in our own hearts. And may we give great praise to you that he gave his body for us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.